I was just getting the update on our on our brother Angel that we've been praying for, who underwent quadruple two weeks ago today or three two weeks ago this morning. Yeah, and is back to work tomorrow. He's got the clearance to go back to work tomorrow. So that's that's yeah, pretty awesome. We are in Matthew chapter seven. You missed the point. You ever heard that? You you, you missed the point. You re- you read something. Uh, maybe for a class, you watched a movie, you prepared a report for work, and some teacher, some supervisor, somebody in charge says, now you, you missed the point. You, you, you just didn't get it. You got a lot of stuff around the edges, but you didn't get the main idea. There are people who clearly missed the point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's some great piece of rhetoric, some nice literature, some high sort of ethical standard uh, that, that people like, they sort of feel like they should embrace and think about, well, this would be really nice if people did this, the idea of the golden rule, the idea of not being judgmental, um, not being anxious, all good things that the culture would embrace and people would likely say, well, yeah, that Sermon on the Mount would be nice if everybody lived that way, right? But that's about it. They come away from the sermon sort of impressed by the literature, understanding that it seems to them to be sort of a set of guidelines for for good living, and that's about it. That is not how Jesus intended the sermon to be received. There's a chance that if we stopped reading right after Matthew 7, 12, we we, we ended last week at verse 12 with what's commonly called the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that if we just stopped there, we might not get all the way through to, to what Jesus is clearly doing in the Sermon on the Mount. We might get fooled into maybe a wrong understanding because what Jesus said next demands a clear response to what he is saying. He doesn't just leave it out there as, as, as teaching and something you can sort of maybe take or leave. He, he says very clearly, you must respond to this. I'm going to be in verses 13 and 14, Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate... For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's one command in that passage. It's the imperative verb at the the very beginning of verse 13. Enter. Enter is is a command. It is Jesus now abruptly having just given the instruction throughout the Sermon on the Mount, talking about the kingdom of heaven and what the righteousness looks like that exceeds that at the scribes and Pharisees, now gives this very direct command and says, you must enter. It's not just his goal to teach about the kingdom of heaven, even though he has clearly done that. Ultimately, he is requiring them to respond. In essence, what he is saying is, when he says to enter is, you must follow me. If, if you are going to take and hear all that I have said to you, you are now called to choose to follow me, to enter into this gate. Throughout the sermon, he's been drawing this contrast. On the one hand, man-centered religion that's sort of works-oriented, good deeds sort of oriented, the idea of scorecard kind of looking at external behavior, lists of do's and don'ts. And he has contrasted that with the true intent of God's law, which is to expose us as as sinners, 
to show us that we, we don't ever keep all of the rules. We, we always break them, and, and we are sinners, and, and we are in need of his grace. We are in need of help, and that's what we even looked at last week where, where Jesus is saying to ask, seek, and knock. He's saying you need to pray. If you're starting to get the impact of the Sermon on the Mount, he then urges pray and ask God to help you seek, knock, pursue God. Man settles for that sort of bottom line, bare minimum behavior, religiosity, spirituality kind of stuff that's, that's all around us, maybe impresses other people. Jesus is saying, no, the, the standard of your Father in heaven is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he begins to explain what that looks like. And it's essentially summarizing the law now by saying that what, what your Father in heaven is looking for is genuine love and worship that pours from out of your heart, that you, you truly love God and you sacrificially love others. You are willing to, to serve others out of love for them because your Father in heaven understands your heart. He knows why you do the things you do. And if it's just for scorekeeping, he sees that. If it's because you, you love, because you're seeking to serve, he sees that. So Jesus has established that the only people who are truly in the kingdom of God are those who first reject the sort of works-oriented, man-centered approach that the rabbis were teaching in that day, that the notion that I, could, I can earn God's approval by uh, completing enough items on the checklist or balancing the scales more in favor of good than in bad. But secondly, and more importantly, Jesus made it clear in Matthew 5, 17, you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, which again is mind-blowing to the people in the audience. How do you expect us to, to live more rightly than they do? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount now teaches. This is what it's like to follow Christ. In the end, there's no way to get to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, right up through the Golden Rule, and not look at it and realize that, that what Jesus is describing here in terms of the character of the kingdom of heaven is something that is entirely different than any kind of righteous standard, any kind of standard of right and wrong that they knew on earth. This is something that is so much higher and different than what they were used to. He sets the bar so high that essentially man is left with two options at this point. The one is to go, that's impossible. Nobody can do that. I, there's no way I can do that. So that leaves me with, I'll just do the best I can. Try to be nice to people who are nice to me. I'll, I'll just try to do enough good things and hope it all works out. Somehow I hope that the score works in the end. Or what Jesus is really pushing his audience to is to say, I, I can't do this. I, I, I can't do this, put away anger and lust and judgmentalism and all this. I need help. I must need help from, from Christ. And so I am going to follow you, Jesus. I am going to be your disciple. That's what he's calling them to is discipleship. And he puts it in terms of entering you're going to follow the world, or are you going to follow this path that, that is broad, or will you enter in by the narrow gate? 2,000 years later, the question is the same before you and I. Will you remain choosing to stay on the path of man's wisdom, wide path, inviting because of it being so wide and spacious, or will you follow Jesus? Will you be his disciples? We think about these two verses this morning. I'm going to highlight four differences Jesus shows us between the two paths with, with four words just to help you think about the, the, these two verses. Four words to mark the differences between the two. Ease, 
appeal, numbers, and outcome. Ease, appeal, numbers, and outcomes. First one's ease. So when Jesus in verse 13 gives the command, enter, what he's indicating, what, what we know theologically, is that man's normal path is, is the wide path that he's already on. It, it, Jesus is calling man to do something different, to turn and to enter into this narrow way. The wide one is the one that, that, that people are, are on. This is the one that his audience may think, I don't know. I'll have to think about these two paths. By, by default, to be honest, you're already on a path. You're already on the broad and the wide path unless you follow what Christ says, which is to enter. He doesn't command them to enter the wide path. He doesn't really describe man as being sort of morally neutral, sort of weighing the two paths and the pros and the cons. On the contrary, he's saying, you, you must enter this narrow gate, because otherwise, you are choosing to walk the wide path. You are choosing to follow the rest of the world and man's wisdom and to be quite content on that. So if, if not having to move, change, turn, make any decision, if that feels best, if, if you don't like admitting that you're wrong, if you don't want to repent, and that's the essence of entering the narrow gate means turning from the path that we're on. That, that's the essence of repentance. It is to say, I have been walking on this path and I am wrong. I have been doing my own thing. I have been living my own life. I have been trying to be master of, of my own life, and I am turning from that to follow Jesus. If, if, if you don't want to repent and turn, then you just stay on what's easiest, and you just keep walking. The, the, the theological truth behind this is the one that, that Jesus referred to last week in verse 11 when he's talking about the, the, the father who gives good gifts to his children. And he, he says that matter-of-fact statement in verse 11, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. He, he, he stated the theological truth that man by nature is rebellious. He is sinful. Uh, he, he, is, he is on that broad path. Whether he wishes to be or not, we are. And, and, and doing it contentedly. Doing it actually by choice because that is, that is where my nature is. It is to do what I want to do. And Jesus is making the point, man is evil by nature. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous, not one. All, all have violated God's law. So to respond to the call of Jesus here in, in Matthew 7, 13 is to deliberately change paths. It, it is to move from the one that is easy, and it's easy because it's it's broad, spacious, and, and, and to change to something different. In fact, I, I think he helps to make that clear to us just by the two different verbs he uses in verse 13 when he's talking about the wide gate in verse 13. He said, those who enter by it, he's describing at that point. There are those who enter by the wide gate. And then verse 14, Jesus said, of the narrow gate, those who find it. There's a, a slight distinction, but it, it makes a crucial point that the narrow path does not just happen. No one just sort of stumbles into the, 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 the narrow path or drifts there by accident. In fact, the word for find is the same one that Jesus used back in verse 7 when he said, seek and you will find. There is, there is action taken to follow Christ, to, to see his gospel and to embrace it and to move toward it. 
One commentator put it this way, it's only those who make the effort to turn aside through the unattractively narrow gate who can find the alternative road. That's following Jesus. No one inherits Christianity or heaven. Following Jesus is not man's default position. The crowd is is blissfully content to keep moving forward through a life that is self-absorbed and that is about me and, and, and puts Jesus on the periphery and maybe sprinkles a little bit of God in there. But man's natural inclination is to rebel against his creator, to choose that way. And yet scripture says, here's the gate and the one who finds it walks through it. We know on the the basis of what's taught throughout Scripture, Gospel of John, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So there's a a supernatural work that we're not setting aside, the fact that that God works in the heart of man to, to draw him to himself. But let's be very clear here that he is commanding and saying, you need to enter. You are responsible to follow Christ, to, to choose to go after Jesus Christ, to embrace his gospel. Those who follow Christ must be rescued by God's grace, and yet they must find and enter the narrow gate. It doesn't come easy. It's not the, it's not the path that we just normally flow toward. So E, second word is appeal. He gives this picturesque kind of language. He talks about the wide path. The word for easy really has the idea of the broadness of the path. It's welcoming. It's comfortable. There's room to roam. Picture, I can can do what I want to do. I just feel such freedom on the wide path. The wide path is like the... You know, driving down the interstate, and you're coming up on the exit ramp, and it gives you the, the smorgasbord of restaurants that will be at that exit, the Chick-fil-A and the Burger King. I, I know you're supposed to pick Chick-fil-A, we're supposed to say, in the evangelical community. I think I'm probably more of an Arby's kind of guy myself, but, but you've got all these choices, and I can get off, and I can, I, I just created a, a problem here, right, about fast food rivalries. I'm sorry. Leave that alone. But the idea of the, the wide path is I can, I can go and come and go and do what I want and, and I've got all of these options because I, I feel all of this freedom and yet I see veering off to the side this narrow path. It's, it's small. It goes through a narrow gate and it really doesn't look very inviting. The Greek word that Jesus used to describe the gate in verses 13 and 14 is stenos. It's the idea of tight, narrow, small. It's like the turnstile at Metro, you know, when you're... You're trying, you hope your pass works and, and all that good stuff. And you can't carry a lot of stuff when you're going through the turnstile. If you've got a bag and a backpack and a few things, it, it, it gets to be enough because you've got to funnel down through that turnstile. And it's not very attractive. It's not the most welcoming thing. And that's kind of what he's picturing here. In fact, verse 14, when he says the way is hard, when he's talking about the narrow way and it's hard, he uses the Greek word thlipso, which is confining constraining. It means to compress something, to squeeze or to press it together. That we've all watched on the news, the the nightmare that just played out down in Houston. But for any of you who've gone to a concert or a sporting event, that's, that's like your worst fear is that kind of moment. Like when the event gets over and thousands of you are all trying to be the first one out to the parking lot and we're all just jam together, all heading for these small exits, and and you feel compressed, and you're worried about where your family is, and you're getting jostled around, and it's not a 
not a super comfortable feeling. But the, the, the point he's making here when he talks about the narrow path is not, you're not being compressed because there's so many people pushing around you. He's saying that the path itself is hard. What's narrow is the path. It's, it's confining. The path itself is constraining. If you think of a, a funnel with the wide end that it works its way down to a narrow end, that's the picture Jesus is painting. The, the, the picture then for, for the life of the unbeliever that Jesus is giving here is you're, you're walking along this wide, spacious road. I feel like I've got all the freedom to do whatever I want to do. I get whatever I want to get. I come and go when I want to go. And, and then there's this, this gate that leads to this path that will compress you. You say, well, why does he... Why is this way hard? What's confining? What's compressing about it? John Stott puts it this way. He says that it's confining because it is restricted to the boundaries of the word of God. What's confining about it is because it has guardrails. Because God in his grace has said, if you will follow after me, I have a, I have a design for your life that has boundaries on it because I, I know you and I know your frailty and your weakness. And so I am, I'm going to constrain you to this path. And there are times when it will be hard, when you will feel like you're being squeezed in on this path. But it's because the, the word of God says, this is the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what it means to follow Christ. It's not always going to, to necessarily feel good by, by our own definition of what feels good to walk this path of discipleship. C.S. Lewis put it this way, that, that the difference between um, the, the narrow way and the broad way is the difference between saying, I believe and I feel. The, the I believe that goes with the narrow way says, I believe this is what the word of God teaches and therefore I will strive by God's grace to be obedient to it. The I feel says, I feel like this is what I want to do. I do what, what my feelings say. You know, the old sort of very Western expression, just follow your heart. Just do whatever you feel in the moment. That, that's that's the broad path. That's, that's the mantra of the broad path is do whatever you want to do. And the narrow way is saying, there's, there's blessing. We're going to get to the outcome part. But understand that, that the, this is within the confines of what God says is right and wrong. It, and it, it makes sense if we go back and think through the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Beatitudes. What is the narrow path? Well, it's, it's meekness. It's confession of sin. It's pursuing righteousness. It's desiring and pursuing a, a pure heart, the things that we've, we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. It's hungering for righteousness. That's, that to the world is not an appealing path because it doesn't come naturally. It doesn't look like the one that, that just lets me do whatever I want to do, to reject anger and lust and a critical spirit and be devoted to prayer and to humble myself in worship, and to do unto others as I would have them do unto you. That's, that's what's down this narrow path because it's a path that is framed by the guardrails of God's word, calling us to live like Christ. The life of a follower of Jesus is governed by the, the truth and the leadership of our king. So it is a narrow walk within our king's prescribed boundaries. We don't just walk however we feel because we have, we have entered by a gate that says, I will follow Jesus. And, and, and that will take me down a path that at times will feel confining and difficult, but I will follow after Jesus because I know where this takes me. Ease, appeal, third difference is numbers. 
Jesus says, those who enter the wide gate are many. Those who find the narrow gate are few. Most of us, if we're honest, we like to belong. If there's an event, we want to be with the crowd and not with the loners who are over here by themselves. We want to be part of what's going on. If If we're people pleasers by nature, there's more people here to please if I, if I walk with them and stay on the wide path. And, and, and so, so at this moment, even if I, I do happen to glance over and see that narrow path, and I'm sort of curious about it for just a moment, that's when my mind says, whoa, 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 whoa. Why would you want to go over there? This is where everybody is. This, you, you're already, you're right here. You're with the cool kids. Just, just stay here. Just think, if you start going that way, what's your family going to think? Oh, you're different. You're weird. You're into that Jesus thing. What are your friends, the ones you hang out with? What are they going to think if you go this narrow path? What will people think? Now, Jesus is putting this simply in majority-minority terms, saying the one, the one is wide, and there are many on it. The one is narrow, and there are few on it. John Stott reminds us that we should not use the few and the many to speculate that the final number of God's redeemed will be small. There's a temptation as we read Matthew 7, 13, and 14 is to think very small numbers, but we need to put this alongside the very vision that Jesus gave through John in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 7, when he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying aloud, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne in the Lamb. What a glorious scene that is. As John takes us to show us what Jesus showed him, and that is we who are trusting in Jesus Christ will be in that unspeakable glory of God with this multitude that cannot be numbered by our numbering. We'll have no idea. There'll just be multitudes. So this is what what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 is, yes, there are more in the world who are content to walk in the way of the world and follow man's wisdom than those who are willing to follow Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean we need to speculate about the numbers. What Jesus is concerned about is, what will you do with his command here to follow him? Enter by the narrow gate. That's that's what he's trying to get us to, is is understanding what the, the command is. But the point, though, too, as we think about this, is not to be in awe of the majority opinion, not to be afraid that passing through the narrow gate means that you'll be in a smaller crowd, because you will, but it's the path of your king. And so that's why Paul in Romans chapter 8 reminds his audience that, yes, because we follow Jesus, we do face persecution. There is suffering and hardship, and yet he adds in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So yes, it's a harder path. Few find it. The glory of God is on this path. There may be few, but we are not alone. We are are blessed with the presence of our Savior, and we are in the company of brothers and sisters in Christ, even as we walk that. Ever since the birth of the church, Satan's eagerly told people contemplating Christianity that Christians are just part of this, this small, unwanted, insignificant minority. 
And for many believers in Jesus Christ, that is the, the, the living experience they have of Christ in the sense of they are, they are made to be outcasts within their culture and they suffer for that. And that's why Jesus said there's cost that you need to count in terms of following me. The, the one exception, perhaps historically, maybe there's others, but the one that's freshest to us has been the history of the, the Christian label here in the United States of America, where, where for generations, pollsters said, most Americans are Christians, because if you ask them, they say, yes, sure, you can call me Christian. And yet, if we look back, we'd also struggle with where, where is the meekness and gentleness and peacefulness and patience and mercy and humility and justice and repentance and all the things that should mark people who are following after Jesus Christ. Few will find the narrow way. That then should fill us with gratitude. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, that should all the more fill you with joy and gladness at what God has done in you to rescue you and to save you. And it should fill you even with more joy because the next thing that he points to is the outcomes in all of this. Verse 13 says, the broad way with the wide gate leads to destruction. In verse 14, though, the narrow way that brings people through that tight gate and confines them on a small path with clear guardrails, that one leads to life. In terms of kingdoms, this is the most important thing that Jesus could say at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. Because most of his audience is thinking, when they think kingdom, they're thinking in terms of their own experience. And Jesus comes to them almost like the political candidate giving the stump speech. I've got a, I've got a kingdom idea for you. I've got a kingdom proposal. If, if you'll follow after me, if you'll support me. And, and, and so in their minds, when they think kingdom, well, first thing they think of is this Roman empire and how onerous it is and how much they hate it and want it off of them. And then they think of their tortured history of the Babylonians and the Egyptians and suffering that their ancestors experienced at the hands of other kingdoms. And, and then they're probably thinking of that brief era that they, they always long for and go back to when David was king and, and, and there was peace and he was establishing boundaries and enemies were being put down. It's hard for them when they, they hear kingdom to think above that, that gaze of here and, and now and what they experience. We do the same thing. Stuart mentioned this before, you know, as we were praying at, at the offering time, we do the same thing with governments and rulers and politicians. We are convinced that if this party is in control, then happy days are here again. But if this party is in control, it's the end of the world as we know it, right? Who's catching the, the, the musical drift there, okay? Good job. Thank you. <laughs> Name that tune. There are some leaders who, are, who love righteousness, many who don't. But what Jesus is, is doing here is trying to lift their eyes above the gaze of these earthly kingdoms, and he's trying to say, folks, this is about eternity. Amen. This, this kingdom matter ultimately is about life and death and the kingdom that I am presenting to you has eternal significance. Following me has rewards not just for this life, but far more importantly for the life to come and for all of eternity. And what he says here is the, the spacious path 
on which the contented and self-absorbed majority are blissfully traveling ultimately leads to eternal destruction and loss and ruin. That's a, that's a hard picture. This, this one that so many are, are choosing to walk ultimately has its end, the eternal experience of destruction. Psalm 1, if you're thinking back in this comparison sort of that, that Jesus is doing, Psalm 1 should ring to mind because Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked, who delights in God's word, who delights in his law and meditates on it day and night. He's like a, he's like a tree planted by a river and he's flourishing and there is fruit growing and the, the leaves don't wither because his rest is in God. The wicked, he says, are not so. They will not stand, Psalm 1 says, through the judgment of God. They will not be able to continue standing through that. They will suffer loss because, as Psalm 1 says, the way of the wicked will perish. In the end, it is the eternal destination of each path that matters most. Because what looks popular and spacious and easy to travel in this life will ultimately lead to destruction and loss of everything that is good. But for those who follow Jesus, he says, way is hard, but the outcome is life. Jesus painted this even more clearly in John 10, 10, when he says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have what? Life and have it more abundantly that they might experience blessing. How you respond to Jesus Christ calling you to follow him, how you respond to that is the difference between destruction and life. It is the, the difference in where you will spend eternity and what you will experience through eternity. The Sermon on the Mount is not some warm, fuzzy message with some neat little ethical standard that would be really cool if everybody followed it. It is Jesus Christ preaching this sermon to urge those people on that hillside to respond and follow him, to walk through the narrow gate, leave behind, repent of their sin, and leave behind the broad path that's the popular route and turn from it no matter how unpopular it might look to turn, no matter how many people might jeer you on the way as you go off that path to follow Jesus Christ. He says, follow me. We will see over the coming weeks, Jesus just reinforce what he's already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. The narrow path of life walks in God's righteousness and it looks so different from the world, but in Christ, in Christ is where the true freedom lies. Knowing Christ and, and walking, walking in the way that by the good design of our creator who knows us and who knows our frailty and knows our hearts and he has given us this narrow path because he wants to bless us in it, because he, he wants to walk with us in it. This is the path of blessing. And, and knowing what he has set before us and the eternal rewards and joys and blessings that, that come with the narrow path will so far surpass all the cheap trinkets that the world is accumulating on that wide road that ends in destruction. The, the narrow path, for those of you who are, you are hikers, those of you who get out there in the wilderness, right? 
you've probably had this experience where you've, you've had to take that rough sort of hike through the woods on this small path that seems kind of confining and it's not always easy and you wonder at points if you're really gonna make it to the end and then you get, people have told you, you get to this point and it opens up in front of you and there is just this glorious valley and a river and there's mountains in the background and you just wanna stop and just breathe it in and be in awe of this scene. That's what Jesus is describing for us, only magnified infinite times. That yes, the path is hard, and it's narrow and it's confining, but at the end of it, oh man, the glory that is at the end. Because we are, we are not alone. Jesus is with us on that pathway and he is, he is walking with us. And when we get to the end of that pathway on, in this life, oh, what awaits on the other side is the magnificent glory of our Savior in his presence forevermore, in his glories with no more tears or sorrow or shame, to experience the spectacular delights of his kingdom. And that's why he says, enter by the narrow gate. That's why he'll tell his disciples later, go and make disciples, call them, urge them to get off that foolish wide path and, and turn and follow Jesus. The outcome is life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that anyone listening online this morning or here who has any measure of uncertainty this morning about what would happen if they were to die today, die this week, if something were to happen, their life was to be gone. And they're just not sure where that would spill out into, what that would look like. Would they stand before you? Would it be heaven? Would it be hell? Lord, I pray, I pray that your gospel would penetrate through the confusion and the darkness. Pray that today they would, they would see clearly that what Jesus is calling people to do is to follow him, that is his, his sinless life, to see the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived out, showing us what it looks like to, to follow after the King, but, but more importantly than that they would see his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, that they would see in Jesus the perfect one, taking on himself the sin of those whom he is rescuing, that taking that sin and being punished for it in their place. So that, by rising again from the grave, he might now give life and forgiveness and peace. So that you would indeed look on him and pardon me. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's, again, caught up in that sort of Okay, I'll try to do these things. I'll see what boxes I can check. I pray that today would be the day that they would repent to, to turn off the path and to say, I've, I've been trying to do this myself. I, I thought I could and I can't and I need Jesus. I, I will follow Christ. I will confess that the, the wide path is the one to destruction. I want to follow Jesus Christ and I want to believe in his death and resurrection. Father, for those who come to faith in Christ. We know the angels in heaven rejoice and we join with them in praying that you would 
you would remind us again and again that even though this, this path can be hard and confining and compressing, that you are with us, that you are walking with us, that you have surrounded us by brothers and sisters in Christ, and that there is a glorious road ahead that pours out into your eternal kingdom. Lord, may that help us this week to live for Christ in all that we do. May it also convict us to see those who continue to blissfully choose man's way, continue to walk the world's path. Lord, help us to be people who would cry out and who would appeal to to friends or to family and to urge them that there is so much more in Christ to cause them to repent and turn. Father, give us broken hearts for those who would go along so, so contentedly toward their own destruction. Give us words, wisdom, and prayer to to intercede on their behalf, and to urge them to turn. Lord, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for making this to be so so clear, that Jesus Christ called us to be disciples. There's no vagueness about this. There's no sort of ifs or buts that Jesus said to enter by the narrow gate. Thank you, Father, for myself, brothers and sisters here, that we are walking that path is just a trophy of your grace. We in our foolishness were, were contented where we were. Thank you for opening our eyes to see that narrow path as the, the path to life. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that all that we say and do would bring honor and glory to him, and we ask all this in his name. Amen.